0: Before we look into the Word, I want to uh, put this in a context that will help you understand where I'm coming from this morning. Uh, I'm not a stranger to this uh, congregation. I am to a lot of you I see out there. Uh, I've had the privilege, numbers of times, of preaching in the old white church that used to be right up there. As a matter of fact, I was in on the purchase of that church uh, from another denomination, I think for a dollar. They, they think we paid them a dollar for that church. Uh, but anyway, it's been good to see the progression of Old Peachtree and watch it, particularly under Alan's ministry, really be- blossom and begin to grow and, and uh, just meet the needs uh, in this general area. And so I'm glad to be with you this morning uh, as Alan is uh, in South Carolina preaching at a former church celebrating a homecoming or something So he asked me if I would speak for him. Before I read the scripture, I want to give you three things that will help you understand where I'm coming from, I hope, this morning. Recently, there was a study done by and within probably the largest church in North America. Uh, And especially through its networks. And... uh, they drew the conclusion, they, they did a survey of their thousands of members, and their conclusion was in dividing the congregation into four different groups of people, pre-Christians, young Christians, gr- maturing Christians, and older Christians. And what they found out was they got high marks as a church for ministering to the pre-Christians and the, the new Christians. But they got very bad marks from the maturing Christians and the older Christians. Their conclusion was, you're not discipling us. And uh, as I read about this, and it's written about now in a book called Reveal, uh, they spent a great deal of time in repentance for that and beginning to change their whole approach to ministry to focus more on discipleship. I'm not telling you that because I've written a book on discipleship. But to, to put the setting before you this morning, a second thing that I read just two weeks ago in the publication Books and Culture by Mark Noe, Professor Mark Knoll regarding worship. He said some, some studies that we have done have concluded that the young people's interest in a contemporary style of worship Is not so much the culture, but because they don't see anything happening in the lives of the adults who do traditional worship, and they're looking for something more. I think that's very interesting. The third thing, I'm, I'm trying to conclude a book I've been reading called Passing on the Faith. And this book is a compilation of essays and messages that were given by a gathering of scholars and religious leaders from all over the world, out of the three religions that really focus on passing on the faith to the next generation, Judaism, Christianity, including Protestant and Roman Catholic, and Islam. And the conclusion in this book is, we are not passing on the faith to the next generation. And pretty much a unified agreement that if something doesn't change by the year 2025, there will be no distinctive Judaism, Christianity, and Islam because we'll all be one big conglomerate because that's the way we're preparing our young people to face the future. If you keep those things in mind, and turn with me to Matthew 28. I want to read very familiar words. The conclusion of this gospel, beginning at verse 16, Matthew 28. Hear the word of God. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. May God bless this reading of his word. Will you pray with me? Father God, our responsibility is to think your thoughts after you, to hear your word, to understand it with your help and to respond accordingly. Open this word to us this morning, O Lord, and exalt your name before us that in the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. To the glory of God our Father, in whose name we pray, amen. We have a constant need To love the things that Christ loves. To know the things that he would have us to know. And to do the things that he would have us to do. So from time to time, I think it's appropriate that we as Christians, individually and corporately, pause and do what I would call a reality check. A spiritual inventory An evaluation or spiritual assessment of how we're doing in order to determine whether we are doing the very things that God tells us to do in his word or that we're not doing. I want to talk to you about a very familiar topic this morning, but maybe a little differently than you may have heard it in the past. I want to talk about the Great Commission. The Great Commission, that's the term that we've used over the years and down through the centuries of the church to refer to this passage of Scripture that I've just read for you uh, at the end of Matthew's Gospel. It's the words of our Lord that were spoken as He was handing off the torch to His disciples and telling them what He wanted them to do as He was ascending back to His Father in heaven. You see, He had come to earth by means of the virgin birth. He had lived, he had taught, he had called out certain people during that time to be his disciples. He had died on the cross to pay for our sins. He had been raised again on the third third day. And all these life-changing events that are centered around the story of Jesus are recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. But as we reach the end of that Gospel in the 28th chapter, this final chapter, Jesus spoke these words that have sounded a clarion call for the church. They remind us that he has a special kingdom assignment for his church during his interim. He has a plan for their lives and he wants them to understand it as he ascends back to his Father in heaven. And it's clear, listen, my assignment for you, said Jesus, is to make disciples. That's the imperative in Jesus' words. And we must hear that particularly if we want to do the will of God. And if we want to do that, then we have to make disciples. Now, most translations into English, uh, unfortunately, including my favorite, the English Standard Version that I read from just a few minutes ago, they uh, give the impression that the imperative in this text is to go. When actually the imperative is to make disciples. In in, In the original Greek, the word go is a participle, which indicates as you are going, about, in the world, here's what I want you to do. Now, I have some friends that, uh, that I've talked, over, talked this over with who are more Greek scholars than I, and they said because of the close proximity of the go to the make disciples, there's also some imperative to the go. And I said, okay, I'll grant, I'll grant you that, as long as you understand that the text says to make disciples. I think this is important for me to point out because... My observation is we have spent far too much energy and effort on the go part of this word and not enough energy and effort on the command to make disciples. Now both, to go to either extreme in this, of course, would be wrong. And What Jesus said in this grand finale is that we're to make disciples of all nations, of all peoples. And in saying that, he reminds us that we have to think about people, even ourselves, who may be called to leave their culture and their homeland and to go and do ministry somewhere else in the world to those from every tongue, nation, tribe, and people. Therefore, let me say up front, and please listen to me carefully because I don't want to be misquoted or misunderstood. The Lord has commanded us to make disciples wherever we are, at home or abroad. And Christians must have a heart for those for whom Christ died from every peoples of the world. And those peoples, regardless of where they are, need to hear the gospel. How shall they believe without hearing? if you can keep that fixed in your minds and not misquote me on anything I said up to this point, then I can concentrate with you for a few minutes on the command to make disciples. And I want to do that because I believe that is the central message of this text. Also, I've become aware of how easy it is for us to develop what I would call a codependency attitude when we think too narrowly about missions. A basic understanding of codependency, as you probably know, is that a codependent is someone who puts all of his energies and efforts on trying to solve somebody else's problems at the expense of not dealing with theirs. Do you know that helping people can actually be a cover-up? From dealing with our own problems that we ought to be facing and working through. Churches can become so focused in their emphasis on the other nations of the world that they forget what's happening right around us. And that's the truth. Making kingdom disciples, I believe, demands and requires our immediate and urgent attention. And that's the consequence. While we should be willing and open to go anywhere God would have us to go in in spreading the good news and serving Him, we must first take an inventory of our present situation. Now notice what Jesus does in this Great Commission. He states it, that we're to make disciples. And then, in good pedagogical fashion, he teaches us how to do it. He tells us how to go about that assignment. By baptizing them into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Just think about that first part for a moment. Baptizing. Baptism. That refers to something very special for us as Christians. It's the sign and the seal of our being engrafted into Christ based on his covenant promise, promises to us and to our children. It also symbolizes, according to the Apostle Paul in Luke in his gospel, a dying to self. Being baptized with Christ and raised with him Dying to self, raised to newness of life. It's one of the two sacraments that God has given to the church. And if we're right, then what he says about baptism has to revolve around the church because we can't separate the church from this great commission if for no other reason it's the institution to whom he says administer the baptism to my covenant people. The church dispenses the sacraments. Well, the first part of this commission, baptizing, also connects the church with the second part of the commission, teaching them, whom we baptized to observe all things whatsoever uh, I have commanded. The church's role or the church's mission is to make disciples disciples By teaching them to observe, to obey, to do all that I have commanded, said Jesus. Now, that gives us a further clue about a disciple. A disciple is one who has been baptized and is being in the process of taught whatever Christ has commanded. The whole counsel of God set forth in the Scriptures of the Old and the New Testament. And God then has commanded us who are being discipled to also move into the mode of becoming a disciple maker. Of course, before you go, you have to come. Before you make disciples, you have to become in that process of being disciples yourself. You have to be baptized and you have to be taught God's word, God's truth about His kingdom. I really like what the New Testament commentator, William Hendrickson, says in regard to this Great Commission passage. He says, think of the scope of what Jesus meant when he said all things. His marvelous discourses. His wonderful kingdom parables. The precious sayings and promises of Jesus. His lessons on the cross and prayer and humility and trust and forgiveness and his law as it's set forth in that kingdom sermon on the mount where he emphasizes both the sovereignty of God and human responsibility and the need for us to live as kingdom people. Those are the kind of things that we're to be taught and then we're to teach as disciple makers. The Apostle Peter gives another version of this great commission in his first epistle, the third chapter, when he says, Have no fear of those who persecute you, nor to be troubled by them, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and with respect, having a good conscience. In other words, be discipled, as Peter says, in such a way that you're able to give anyone an answer who asks you why you're a Christian, why you believe in Jesus, why you go to church, why the Bible is important. Be able to give them an answer. Why you, what do you believe and why you believe it? But my, why would anyone even... Care to ask me what I believe or or why I believe it? Well, if you read the context of 1 Peter 3, I think it's because they recognize that there's something different in the life of a person who does believe the truth. You know, I think the Bible teaches that as Christians, we are to look different. We are to be different. And when we are that, we stand out and people ask us why. And Peter says, we need to be able to give them an answer. Our our lives should daily reflect the rule and the reign of Christ. Obeying Him in all things whatsoever He has commanded. You see, kingdom people make disciples and kingdom people make a difference. And that's the truth. In George Gallup Jr. and Michael Lindsay's book, Surveying the Religious Landscape in the U.S., and I quote this, their conclusions in the book i would written on discipleship, they conclude that most Americans say in surveys that they believe in God, but they cannot articulate who this God is. Even those, they say, who have grown up in the context of the church are not able to talk intelligently about the God or the Supreme Being they say that they believe in. You know, friends, I think that's why it hurts my heart so much to, to hear a statement such as the one made by Theodore Rozak when he said, While our Christianity may be privately engaging, it is socially irrelevant. Privately engaging but socially irrelevant. And I want you to remember that because of what I'm, what I'm going to, about to tell you. Our faith, if it really means something to us, defines who we are. And for someone to tell me that because of my, my faith is socially irrelevant, I have nothing to offer to the world, that hurts to the core of my heart. Could it be That we as Christians in the church are sending the message that we are socially irrelevant. I want to introduce you to a friend. His name is Christian Smith. Christian has been the Stuart Chapin Distinguished Professor of Sociology at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, but most recently has transferred to the University of Notre Dame. I think he's one of the brightest Stars in academia today. He's a sociologist. He's authored many books already. Uh, this young man has written voluminously on American evangelicalism, among other things, and I'm happy to say he's a member of the PCA. He recently uh, authored a couple of outstanding books that uh, really spoke to my heart and challenged me as I read them. One was called The Secular Revolution and what's happening in America because of the secularistic influence. But the second book he wrote is called Soul Searching. I use that as a text when I teach kingdom discipleship in the seminary, along with my book and and a couple of others. But uh, this book was so extremely important. As the book came out a couple of years ago, he was interviewed by Michael Cromedy, who is... uh, Actually, he's the director, Michael Cromedy is the director of Evangelical Studies Project of Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and also a graduate of Covenant College, by the way. And uh, he did an interview with Christian before, as the book was coming out. And I want to summarize that interview, and I hope it will be apparent when I finish why I take the time to do it. From started the interview by saying to, to, to Christian Smith, he said, that most people today depict uh, the youth as disillusioned, irreverent, uniquely postmodern, belonging to something that's next and new, that today's youth are restless, alienated, rebellious, determined to find something that's radically different from that uh, which their parents They raised them in. But then Cromarty said, But you you seem to challenge that idea about today's youth. Christian said, Yes. Today's youth, however, have a great deal in common with their parents. They share their parents' values. The idea of the generation gap that we heard about in the 1960s is not now the best. Description to talk about the different generations. Smith said, there's a commonality that's not that apparent on the surface, but underneath that draws kids to their parents. He said, I expected my research, this is Smith talking, he said, I expected my research to find more resistance and more negative views from young people about religion in general. But our research has shown us that most kids are, are willing to believe whatever their parents believe and do whatever their parents do. And he said, we found out that parents really don't have to drag their kids, particularly the teenagers, off to church kicking and screaming. They generally go willingly. He said, I expected to find in this research, which I'll tell you about in a moment, uh. I expected to find among the teenagers more resistance and more negative views about religion in general. But again, he said, our research showed us that that the the kids uh, are willing to go where their parents go and believe what they believe. Now, he's talking about teenagers 13 through 17 years of age. And he's saying this as a result of the largest study that's ever been done in America on the American teenager was funded by the Lilly Foundation. And Smith and his co-workers took about four years to conclude this study. They interviewed 3,370 teenagers in that bracket from all walks of life and from all religious backgrounds. And they had in-depth interview with almost 300 of those. And, and they, then they, they drew their conclusions. He said in high school maybe in somewhat contrast to college, teenagers are more conventional regarding their religion. But one thing is clear. Teenagers don't want to be too religious. They don't want to be perceived as overzealous, uncool, embarrassingly intense about their faith. And walking around with the Bible and quoting scripture is wacko to the average American teenager. Primardi then said, One thing your research found is that teenagers are incredibly inarticulate regarding their faith, their religious beliefs, and their practices. Very few of them can explain why they believe what they believe and how those beliefs are connected with the rest of their lives. To which Smith said, Well, think of the religious faith somewhat like learning a second language. You learn a second language best by being around someone who speaks that language well and then gives you an opportunity to practice speaking that language with them. And Smith said, while our research doesn't tell us how well they are hearing the second language being religion, he said, we can conclude that our young people are not given a chance of speaking it with adults. Smith said, we were dumbfounded in our research of the large number of teenagers who said to us in our interviews, you're the first one that's ever asked me what I believe. I don't know how to respond. One teenager said, I just don't know how to answer your question." Because you're the first one that's ever asked me what I believe. Then Cromarty said, then you found that the teenagers were very attenuated, thin, dense about their religion. But you didn't find them to be radical relativists, you say. Smith said, yes, that's right. Very few teens that we surveyed in this study across across North America uh, are hardcore relativists. The fact, in matter of fact, he said, we found them to be quite moralistic. They assert very confidently that they know some things are right and some things are wrong. They can't tell you what's right and what's wrong always, but they have that feeling that there is right and wrong, though they can't understand how to distinguish between the two. So what we have, he said, is a generation of young people who know the concept of good and bad, but they don't know how you arrive at the conclusions. And then Cromartie said, what legitimates the religion of most youth today is not that religion is transformative, that it has transcendent truth, but religion provides mental, psychological, emotional, and social benefits for being being religious. That makes religion useful and valuable. And Smith said, yes, that's true. But not only for kids, it's true for their parents as well. And parents believe, if I can get my kids involved in religion, they'll do better. They won't get into drugs. They'll make better grades in school. And they'll even wear their seat belts in the car. That's understandable. He said it's clearly an undeniable fact that kids who are more religious do better in, in those different arenas of life. But then Smith goes on to say, I have to conclude on the basis of our research, and listen carefully, that my description of the religion of the American teenager is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. God exists. There is a God. There is a creator God, but he doesn't have a whole lot to do with our day to day living. He's, he set up some kind of moral structure. And I know he wants me to be nice and he wants me to be good and he wants me to be pleasant because those are the ones that go to heaven. And almost everybody except Stalin and Khrushchev go to go to hell or go to heaven. They say. And friends, that's the teen morality. And parents are so happy to hear that their teens are moral. That they believe that the purpose in life is to be good, because good people go to heaven. Cromartie's saying, but if I hear you correctly, then you're saying that God is somewhat like a divine butler and a cosmic therapist for those teenagers. And Smith said, that's exactly right. There is a God. He doesn't get involved in our lives unless we have a problem or a need. And then we can call on God and he'll come and deal with the felt need in our lives. But on a day-to-day basis, he doesn't have much to do with us or us to do with him. And the parents are satisfied with that kind of moral lifestyle. Where are they getting this therapeutic, moralistic, therapeutic deism? Cromedy asked Smith. To which Smith said, I told you, the most influential people in the kids' lives are the parents. They're getting it from the parents, and they're getting it from other adults, and the adults are applauding this conclusion. The parents. And yet, Smith said, one overwhelming conclusion that we've drawn from the studies is that the teenagers we interviewed from all the faiths say that they wish more than anything else they had a better relationship and more time with their parents. That was the number one thing out of, that, out of that survey. And you know, parents, we often misread our, our children and our young people. We don't know how to read the message they're sending, and they don't know how to send us the message very clearly either, but the need is there. Someone is failing our young people today, and we better wake up to that and realize who it is we better do that in the home, and we better do it in the church. Smith said, we found that most parents of the teenagers that we, we've uh, surveyed are very uncomfortable talking about religion to their children. They don't want to feel, they feel uncool when they try to talk about religion. Jesus says in our text, That we're to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded. But from my own studies and research, along with Christian Smith's and George Barnes' and George Gallup and Lindsay and Chap Clark from Fuller Seminary, we're not doing that very effectively with our young people. Chap Clark, who teaches, uh, youth and Family Ministries at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California, in one of his recent books entitled Hurt. Hurt says that while parents are committed to giving their children the best of everything in sports and in clothes and in automobiles and in music and in art, by the admission of the teenagers, they are not getting from their parents what they want most of all. And that's answers. Answers to the issues that they're having to face at their young age and will do so more increasingly as they get older. What well, we found is that most adults are not answering their kids' questions, or else they're answering their own questions at the expense of listening to their children and their young people. You know, when God tells us to make disciples, another way that the psalmist says it is that we're to pass on the faith to the next generation. Friends, our young people today are facing some really serious issues. Living in a fast-changing world where hours have become minutes, and minutes have become seconds, and seconds have become nanoseconds. A world in which cracking the genetic code has opened up many challenging and frightening doors to all of us. In biotechnology, gene patenting, genetic discrimination, nanotechnology and cybernetics, not to mention germline intervention. How do we think about those things in a way that God would have us to think We can't follow some of the scientists in their conclusions because they say you can't mix your religion and and truth, religion and facts. What about the one-half to three-quarters of a million frozen embryos that are in existence today? What are they? What are we going to do with them? Abortion as a means of Birth control is horrible enough. But what about the other issues? Things like embryonic stem cell research, cloning embryos for harvest, and euthanasia. And what about the prediction in the 2000 CIA report that terror is coming to our shores, becoming a reality in 9-11, And and what about the countries that are are going to war, and now we may have some states going to war, over the scarcity of water? And the whole human rights challenge. How are we being prepared to face those issues? Well, I think that reminds us the church has a mission today. And it's to make disciples. Disciples. By teaching them to observe, to practice all things whatsoever God has commanded. And we need to do that with all urgency and all seriousness that we can muster. Paul's words to Pastor Titus need to ring in our ears. He told Pastor Titus to teach the older men and the older women so that they could in turn teach the younger men and the younger women. That's a big job. It's overwhelming. But that's what the church is all about. Christ has put us together in the context of the church where we realize what we're supposed to do, but we don't have to do it alone in isolation from the rest of the body. The church is there by God's design to help us in the process of making kingdom disciples of our covenant children. And remember, those teachings... Are connected with baptism. Of course, that doesn't mean you can't begin to teach someone until they're baptized. But it means that once a person is baptized, as John Calvin said, we need to teach those who've been baptized the meaning and significance of their baptism. And if they once understand that, then they'll understand what being a kingdom disciple is all about. Charles Molly statesman Former UN Secretary speaking in 1980 at the Billy Graham School of Communication dedication at Wheaton College spoke, uh, his topic was the twofold task of evangelism. He said, number one, it's to save souls, and number two, it's to save minds. And he said, if we fail at either one, we will probably f- uh, fail at both. Friends, the church does have a mission. God has told us what he wants us to do wherever we are in the world. But you know, in the appendix of my book, I use several quotes out of the 1999 Conference on World Discipleship held in England under the leadership of people like uh, John Stott. And the conclusion of those 400 to 500 leaders from around the world was this. Globally, the church is a mile wide and an inch deep. Never in my lifetime has the urgency to listen to Jesus' commission and understand what he is saying been as important as it is right now. Not only is truth up for grabs or whatever we want it to be, there are those who are telling us there's no such thing as truth. We're not training ourselves and our young people to be critical thinkers. At best, we're training them to be moralistic, therapeutic deist. Now, I ask you, is that what Jesus had in mind when he gave these words in Matthew 28? Is that what he meant for us to teach, uh, to teach our children the religion of moralism? Our culture is under the canopy today of postmodern philosophy in the classrooms, in the streets, even in many churches and religious institutions, our homes. And this is at a time when Islam is growing rapidly and capturing the hearts and minds of, of many teenagers, even in America. What do we do about that in those young people who have never been connected with the church? What is our challenge? Our challenge is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, body, and soul, and our neighbor as he has given us commandment. Parents, do you hear me? Grandparents, adults, God has given us instruction. We need to reach out to our young people as never before, and maybe together with them, learn how to think As God would have us to think and live as God would would have us to live. We can't leave it up to our young people to work out their own own philosophies. They don't have enough uh, background. They don't have enough pegs to hang things on today to leave it up to them to decide what's right and wrong, what they're going to do. They need and they want boundaries in their lives. And they need our help with that. So the church's mission is to make disciples. By baptizing and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever Christ has commanded. How are we doing with that? The reality check, the spiritual inventory. Are we discipling believers? That's what the big church I mentioned earlier found out they were not doing effectively. Should we keep our views to ourselves and allow our faith to be privatized because we're now living in an environment of tolerance and we don't dare try to force our religion on anybody else and we don't want anybody else to force their religion on us so we just enjoy it privately or when we come together as a church. Now that's another place where we can talk a little differently than we do in the world during the week because we're with other people who say they believe what we believe. I'll give you one illustration and I must close a couple of years ago, I was teaching a class at one of our seminaries at the time Mary Schiavo died. You remember that story of a woman down in Tampa. And I, I was teaching a class when we got word of her death. Forty-five students, in, seminary students in my class. And I wanted to see what they were thinking and how they were processing all of that. And I want to tell you, it was like pulling teeth to get them to say anything. Most of them said, I'm not sure how to think about it. Why doesn't the denomination write a position paper, Someone one of them said and tell, tell us how to think? I said, you remind me of the man who almost thought for himself. There's moral confusion in the world today. And much of it is a result of our not being obedient to Christ's instruction and to his word. Christianity It's a total way of life. It's not just a Sunday religion. It doesn't just—it's not supposed to affect just the way we think at church, but how we do marriage and how we do family and how we do business out in the world. And we've fallen into that dualistic trap because we haven't been taught otherwise—that there's a secular part of our life and a sacred part of our life, and never the two should mix. Religion is for the sacred, and everything else in life is for someone else. God's truth is complete and total, and he tells us to teach it to all people. Tell the truth, or be willing to pay the consequence. And I'm going to put a cherry on the icing of that cake and close If you want to experience the power and the presence and the reality of God in your life, will you be certain that you're hearing and obeying Jesus' words of making disciples? If you're doing that, then I can tell you, you will experience that because Jesus closes by saying, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Could anything be more wonderful in our life than having God with us? His power, His presence working in our lives? He promises it to us. If we obey Him and we play by His rules and we do what He tells us to do, let's pray. Father God, we need you in our lives. We need you every day. But there are some days we need you more than others. And right now we're living in a day where we really need you working in our lives because, Lord, we think we feel like we're letting you down. We're not doing what you've told us to do. We're not teaching. We're not modeling. We're not passing on to the next generation all things whatsoever you've commanded. Help us as parents to examine our lives and our role with our children and grandparents and other adults in the church. And help us as a church collectively, as individual congregations, as a denomination, as a worldwide Bible-believing church, to realize the importance of these final words of Jesus in Matthew 28. Father, it's not about us. It's about you and obeying you, and loving you, and serving you. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts. You know where we are on the scale. You know where we are in our own spiritual inventory. And we need your help. And we need your forgiveness. And we so much enjoy your promise of being with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.